You're listening to The Legal Eagle with Marsha Chambers on WNHH LP 103.5 FM. Welcome to The Legal Eagle radio show where we discuss current legal issues of the day. The Legal Eagle looks into a wide variety of issues that confront the state and the towns and the cities. We also look at issues facing the legislature and the courts. Today, I want to welcome back to our show, Laura Bourbon, who is the director of the Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter in Branford, a shelter that covers Branford and North Branford and North Durham. God knows it could go on and on, right? <laughs> You're all over the state. Uh, in her years as the head of the shelter, she has in- undertaken any number of legal projects in order to help the animal population in the shelters that she serves, besides dogs and cats, the Branford Shelter which opened its doors in 2003. Yeah. I remember that. Has rescued a baby fawn, a blind baby skunk, a fox hit by a car, a raccoon in a bay window, napping, of course, <laughs> and 14 new, newborn puppies abandoned in a cooler, one of which she adopted. I remember that story very yep. well. Yeah, that was a big story. It was a big story, and we, we we're still on it in some ways. Right? I know, I know. Yes. It seems to be ongoing. Ongoing, right. So welcome, Laura, to The League Legal. Thank you for coming to us to visit us at the WNHH Community Radio Studio today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we are awaiting the arrival of yet another hurricane, Jose, which I think has petered out, is the last uh, sort of n- not much. Maria around the corner. Um, tell us uh, if you worked at all with uh, the shelters in um, Texas after Harvey or in Florida. Uh, what's the scene like there with animals? Well, um, we typically don't um, work with out-of-state shelters. Um, we're big advocates and supporters of shelters within Connecticut. I know that. We've, so, yeah, we've, we we've talked about that. Yeah, we've discussed <laughs> that, right, because we, if, we, if we bring in all these other animals, what do we do with the ones that we have in our shelters, right? Right, <clears> right. <throat> and, and there's also a responsibility factor of who becomes responsible after they're here if the rescues that are bringing them in won't take them back if someone decides they don't want them anymore. But, but beyond that, so, um, so with the Hurricane Harvey, when it hit Texas, um, they were devastated, and, and they tend to... To be a little different in Texas than we are here in Connecticut, um, that some people may have 30 dogs, and that's just their normal daily occurrence. They have 30 chihuahuas, or they have 20 cattle dogs. You mean, you mean in their homes? Yeah, in their homes and in barns and things like that, because they're working dogs. I see. Um, and some are just pets, too. But they also have a large population of animals, or dogs specifically, but sort of like we have a large population of cats, at least in our area that I know of, um, that are become feral or strays because people abandon them and move away. Mm-hmm. Well, the same is true for them in Texas, where we don't see that here, but theirs is with dogs. So people will move away and leave their dogs, and they become dogs that live in the woods, and people put out food for them, and there's feeders. They go and feed them, and they provide them with dog houses and things like that. And sometimes when they can catch them, they do, and sometimes they can't catch them just because they're living in the woods. So when the hurricane hit, a lot of these dogs perished um, mm-hmm. because... There was really nobody caring for them um, other than the feeders who were trying to do the best they could, and they drowned. Um, So for those dogs that um, did survive or the ones that were left behind by their owners, they're finding that they need a place to go. And the Mm -hmm. shelters are already inundated with dogs that are looking for homes. So we... um, we basically reached out to a couple of shelters in Texas and said, listen, if we can help free up space of your already adoptable dogs, 
so that you can get boots on the ground and go into the the marshes and swamps and take dogs out of the water and get them to safety, we'd be happy to help. So the dogs that we're taking are dogs that were already um, available for adoption, and we're just kind of clearing their shelters of space. And so they're vaccinated and heartworm tested and spayed and neutered and all that stuff already. Um, so they just needed to come up here and give them space, which is what we offered to do. And we also are sending supplies down to those organizations we're working with. So um, w- when you say come up here, um, how many does this involve and where did they, where did they go? Did they come to Brantford? Did they go to North Haven? I heard they might have gone to North Haven. So um, there's a... A few different groups in Connecticut that are working to bring dogs up. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, We have so far taken four dogs that were transported up on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Um, We have um, about 15 more that are coming up. And the only reason that many is coming is because East Shore Veterinary Hospital contacted me. Mm -hmm. um, And they offered to kind of fill their kennels with dogs to be able to help, um, you know, Texas alleviate some of the pressure that's going on. Um, and once again, I mean, typically it's not something we would do, but in a natural disaster like this, if we were in this situation where all of our shelters were flooded out and we had no place to put these dogs safely, I would hope that p- other people would reach out to us as well, um, including other states, mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, we would need to find housing for them until we could rebuild. Right. So these are dogs uh, typically without owners. Not- oh, yeah. These are dogs that are already looking for homes. Oh, these aren't right. dogs that are owned oh, by people that right. are waiting for them to come back. Right. Because otherwise that would present another issue. Right. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, we wouldn't get involved with anything like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, because mm-hmm. we figure the people who are down there, like Best Friends Animal Society and mm-hmm. the Houston SBCA, there's a whole bunch of organizations down there that have set up camp to basically take in the dogs that have owners that are mm-hmm. waiting to reunite them with owners. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't want to get involved with any of that stuff. We just wanted to be able to help them alleviate space issues mm-hmm. and get them up here. So you have four, right? Yep. And, and how do they appear to you? How do they They're seem? adorable. <laughs> oh, they're adorable. No, they're, they're, in other words, they have, they're, they're okay. They haven't been totally traumatized by this. No, no. I mean, really because these dogs were already, and I think, they, used to shelter life and uh-huh. used to kind of oh, things I, that go on. Right. So they weren't, um, they weren't affected so much by, you know, being, being in the shelter as much as I'm sure they were affected by the transport, <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming up here. That's right. That, that's a long, long haul. Yeah. But they're, all. they're all southern gentlemen and women and very polite <laughs> with their southern draws they're they're adorable oh, that's great i'll have to come by and see them <laughs> yeah, they're cute <laughs> okay uh, so if you are just tuning in to our listeners we are speaking with laura bourbon the director of the dan cosgrove animal shelter in Brantford. um just turning to another part of your life um we want to congratulate you on your recent appointment to a state legislative task force thank that, you that is uh studying the Humane treatment of animals in municipal and regional animal shelters. That is, that is the sentence that yep. goes with it. Um, and I, I have to add here that North Haven's first selectman, Michael Frieda, is the chair of that task force, and he has been a guest on the uh, Legal Eagles radio show. And he's oh great, and he's he's big into the same areas of life that you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, right. he's he's a very strong, good advocate for um, for animals. Right. Um, so let's look at those words. The Humane Treatment of Animals in Municipal and Regional Animal Shelters. The task force has been at work since 2014 with an interim hiatus. We would expect, I guess, humane treatment in municipal and regional animal shelters. Yet we are looking into that. 
Yep. So could you explain that sort of interesting sentence? Yeah, so basically um, what we've been tasked with is trying to improve upon um, what is already going on in um, municipal shelters. And some shelters, as we all know, are just absolutely amazing. And they have plenty of staff and they have some have volunteers. um, And some shelters are one man show um, with one person who works part time 15 hours a week or something like that. And they're trying to do everything and make everything happen. It's very difficult. Um, So we're trying to look into ways that we can support them and also better the conditions for animals who are living in in the shelters while they're awaiting their forever homes. Okay, so what you've described here is, let's say, what you've described is the the operation of how shelters work in the the towns and the cities of, of New Haven. So there's a vast difference. So who makes the determination, for example, that there'll be one worker with 15 hours a week, and that's it. Is that is that a municipal determination that has no oversight by the state? Well, yes and no. So if you have a certain amount of residents in a community, um, there is a state statute that says you have to have a certain amount of animal control officers dependent on the amount of residents you have living in that community. Um, however, they can, you know, kind of, I think, skirt around that a little bit by maybe putting in some um, fill-ins, Mm -hmm. and things like that per diem type people. Mm -hmm. So um, to only take calls when they're being called out on them. Mm -hmm. So so there's different ways, you know, that that they can look at it. You know, they are required to have an animal control officer based upon a certain amount of residents living there, but they can also, you know, only call those people in for when, you know, they have calls that they have to go on. Right. So, and that is by state statute? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so is the task force looking at the effectiveness of that statute? Well, we're looking at the effect- effectiveness of a lot of, ta- of a lot of the state statutes. Um, you know, specifically the animal cruelty statute. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make laws stronger for animal uh, control officers to be able to uh, enforce the laws properly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and be more efficient at their jobs as well. So, we're looking at multiple things. Um, things like how are dogs being housed in these kennels? So. Um, you know, are they provided with enrichment? We're looking at things like um, would volunteers be effective in helping to provide the animals with more enrichment? Um, we're looking at laws that uh, will help animal control officers to do their jobs more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at spay and neuter um, for animals mm-hmm. in shelters. Mm-hmm. So there's multiple things we're looking at and we're breaking up into sort of subgroups uh, mm-hmm. and working on those items mm-hmm. and then coming up with recommendations on what we think would benefit uh, municipal shelters. And we take feedback from both animal control officers and we also take feedback from the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, we, we encourage people to come to the meetings and, and have a voice and, and let us hear, you know, what their thought processes are. And and if someone in our audience wanted to do that, where are they held? And so they're at, they're held at the state capitol at the LOB, mm-hmm. and they are the next meeting is October sixth mm-hmm. um, at two p.m. Mm-hmm. and the one after that is November third um, mm-hmm. at two p.m. So they're held once a month on a Friday, mm-hmm. and it's always at two p.m. Okay, that's great. Okay, yeah. we'll have we'll have to visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're you're devising um, different uh, proposals. Yep. Right. To present to the legislature this session? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so let's talk about the first one, uh, animal cruelty. And mm-hmm. where are we at now? There have been a number of major cases, as we know. Yep. Um, uh, Want to talk to one or how, how that's working out? 
Um, well, you know, Desmond's law was one that went into effect, which was one that we were all um, happy with because, you know, it sort of gives the animal a voice in the mm. courtroom. Okay, tell, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about Desmond. So Desmond's law mm. allows an animal advocate to go mm-hmm. into the courtroom, which mm-hmm. is an attorney that is either um, currently in school or has um, been appointed uh, by the state. They're, they get on a list and they're basically um, named as someone that can be called right. as an attorney to be representative of the animal. And um, in Hartford, anyways, they've seen it. Been, it's been successful. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't known of a case in New Haven mm-hmm. where um, there's been an animal advocate in the court system yet. Um, yeah, but, we're, we're looking for one, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, what what New Haven is exactly doing yet. Right. So um, one of just to go into what happened to Desmond a little bit, since it is a local case, um, and this was the story of of a dog, and uh, his owner lived in Branford. Uh, his name was Alex Woolhart. And he received accelerated rehabilitation for violently torturing this animal. Yes. Over a period of time. And mm-hmm. eventually he tortured him to death. Yes. But the dog had been, uh, before Alex picked him up, uh, uh, had been in a shelter. Mm-hmm. And it raised a huge hue and cry in, in New Haven uh, because of the use of accelerated rehabilitation by right. many judges right. uh, to basically make a case disappear and to wipe the record of the accused clean. Right. Um, so, so this case was fascinating in a way. I think I covered every, every one of the hearings, and, right. and so did you. You were there in, 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 in many of them. Yep. Um, and in the end, I don't quite know what happened because there wasn't another case process, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with accelerated rehabilitation, but in in your view, is that still being used as a tool within the court system? Accelerated rehabilitation for for this kind of dog case. Absolutely. Oh. Okay, could you talk to that a little bit? Well, I I know of cases that have gone on in other communities mm-hmm. where um, dogs have died, um, have been left in crates, and people have moved out and just left, mm-hmm. and the dog had you know perished in its own crate. Um, some cases uh, gnawing off their own paws because they are just trying to figure out how to get out. Um, mm. And they're found deceased, and um, the, the ruling is accelerated rehabilitation. And, and that could be for in multiple. In, in other words, the accused, the yep. suspect who owned the dog, is brought to court. Yes. And that's all. So is there any effort <clears throat> by the part of the task force to take a long, hard look at the way in which judges, for want of a better way, need to be educated well we're certainly looking at how the laws are written um Mm -hmm. and potentially to to add addendums to them so that it's more specific Mm -hmm. um because in certain cases uh i don't feel like accelerated rehabilitation should be an option Mm -hmm. because certainly if it was um a human life that was lost because of neglect or um, torture, mm-hmm. or things like that, we wouldn't be looking at going into a program and you know coming out on the other side without having a record. And we know from, from just past history that people who tend to do these types of things to animals um, can be harmful to humans. So we want to be thoughtful about mm-hmm. that, and the task force is absolutely looking at that. Um, mm-hmm. And we're lucky on the task force because we have a really good group of people, mm-hmm. and we don't always necessarily agree on mm-hmm. every topic, but um, everybody is there because they want to make sure that we are providing um, animal control officers with the right tools as far as laws 
mm-hmm. to be able to do their jobs efficiently. Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating to just take, you know, the courts and take a look at what their traditional approach has been. Right. You know, um, <clears throat> well, good luck on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so um, what you're describing basically is how municipal or city shelters operate. Each one has its own independent approach. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're with an overall set of general state statutes, yes, so to speak, and and with having to look at each individual, I guess, shelter to determine whether or not it's functioning all right. right. Is, is there a, a big plan, an overall plan? Let's say you were to be in an area where, just like you, where you do, you have three shelters that you oversee, to my knowledge. It could be more. Well, three towns. Three towns. So we, we oversee Bramford, North Bramford, and Northford. Right. Yep. So is there an, a possibility that some of these shelters might be coordinated like yours or, you know, figure out a better way to handle it? Or maybe it's not geographical. I don't know. Well, we're, we're trying to put in place standardization for shelters, um, you know, because right now every shelter is run so differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It just means that we're trying to offer them some solutions to mm-hmm. some of the issues that we know are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, having each shelter run similarly would be very helpful because it would be helpful to the public. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, you know, every community is run so differently. Um so it's hard to get everybody to want to do all of the same things when communities are, you know, have their own culture, you know, depending on the community itself. Well, you know, this is an issue that faces Connecticut in all kinds of different right. areas, right? right. And, and we have to replicate every police force, every fire. I mean, I'm not saying right. it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's, it's expensive and, and one has to live with the, the mores of the town. Right. But with regard to animals, maybe there's a better way of doing it. I don't know. I mean, uh, but you're exploring. Yeah, and that's that's exactly kind of what we're doing is we're exploring and we're trying to put systems in place that will be helpful and make recommendations uh, to the legislator, legislature about what we're trying to do um, right. and what we see are the needs out there. Have you thought about, you know, the possibility of like who is in charge of the shelter? Like you would probably report to... The, our equivalent of a mayor. Yes. Is that, is that a, mm-hmm. right? Um, is that the way it should be? I, I'm, I, just, I'm just making a question. I mean, yep. if you're trying to change a system, should each individual shelter's director be responsible to a mayor? Well, but, I think, well, the first thing that I would think is, is if, I, if, if someone said, okay, Laura, you get your vote on what's going to happen for everything, you know, for animals throughout the state um, regarding animal shelters, mm-hmm. I would say that every shelter should have a director. Um, you know, and a director separate from the police department if they're under the police department. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I say that for multiple reasons, but I think that having one unique individual in charge who's overseeing um, both animal care and the staff and caseloads mm-hmm. um, would be helpful because they're someone who's in charge of the just the physical shelter. Um, that's all that they're that are directed with is going to have a different understanding of what is actually happening within that facility mm-hmm. and with dealing with the general public on those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it's difficult for me to say whether or not everybody should be under the mayor because that's the only experience that I've had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it may be more effective to be under the police department mm-hmm. um, just because you are working so closely with them. But in other um, states, such as New Jersey, they're under the Department of Health. 
So right, right. The, and in the, New you know, York, I think they are too. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I believe they are in New York as well. So if you're under the Department of Health, that's a totally different Right, it's a totally different. Right. So in, in other words, one of the things the task force might explore is where, right now, what's the role of the Department of Agriculture? Um, they're the state agency. They also oversee um, municipal shelters. So they come in and they inspect us um, mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, we're housing animals properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they may not be the best agency to do that. I'm just thinking out loud mm-hmm. only because I've lived in other states and yep. it hasn't happened there. And um, they may not, uh, they, they may be too narrowly directed, mm-hmm. so to speak. And um, so that might be, is that an issue before the task force as to who, who should oversee animal life in? Well, I don't know if that's something that they're looking at. One of the reasons I'm not certain that that would be something they're looking at is because Ray Connors, who's the Department of Agriculture head, sits on the task force as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he, he, I don't know that he would, you know, support that idea. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know how he would feel about that. You know, I, I know that the state really um, gets involved with like livestock cases. Mm -hmm. Um, They will come out when there's a cockfighting ring Mm -hmm. or if there are, you know, a bunch of horses that have been abandoned and are starving, Mm -hmm. they come out and they assist and they are the ones who usually Mm -hmm. take over those cases and Mm -hmm. will, um, you know, Mm -hmm. rescue those animals. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably a question, you know, that I would have to ask him just because it's not something I ever really thought about. But I, I do agree in other states, it, it's, you know, they're not under the Department of Agriculture or they're not under the DEEP. They're under, you know, the Board of Health for, for whatever reason. So. Right, right. But that'd be an interesting exploration. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about um, uh, how long, since they're so individual, these shelters, mm-hmm. and they come under so many different, well, they come under the Department of Agriculture, but then you said police department. Yeah, most most are run underneath the police department. So most are run, um, you know, they're overseen by the chief, but whoever's in charge, you know, the sergeant or the lieutenant or whoever. Okay, so the police department might have direct say in some towns. Yep. Right. In our town, it's the first selectman. Yes. And 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 it varies from town to town and city to city. Yes. So overall, that's a very confusing operation. Yeah, and that's by statute as well. That's by statute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why you're looking at statutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's by statute as well. Because in some towns, um, even still in Connecticut, in some towns, the chief of police is the mayor. Oh. So they're they're all one in the same. Hmm. So so they are the same person. So that's probably why the statute was written that way. Because you know, in some communities, the chief of police and the mayor are the same person. Fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that would give an individual, for want of a better word, director of a shelter, if that person happened to be that, yep. um, or the police department or whomever, um, the right to set policy with regard to how long an animal may stay at a shelter before that animal is euthanized. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that would vary depending upon whether it was the police, the mayor, the first selectman, or whomever? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so e- for each individual shelter, it depends. You know, by state statute, you have to hold the animal for seven days. You have to advertise. Seven. The an- yes. So you have to advertise. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you advertise the animal um, both in your local large um, newspaper mm-hmm. and online as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, you reach out to the general public to see if anybody knows of whose dog this was based upon, you know, the area that it was found. So, um, you know, that's right now, 
how animal control officers are, you know, viewing the animals who come in under the seven day rule. So you hold them. And then after that point, if you've advertised them and nobody's come in, you know, looking for the animal, then the animal is yours to determine what happens with, whether it is, um, you know, spayed, neutered and adopted or it's disposed of or whatever each individual shelter is is decided. So at the beginning of this program, we talked about you're getting um, these poor animals uh, from Galveston, Texas, who made a long trek to get to Connecticut, and the idea is to adopt them. Yep. And you've got seven days, or do you have... Oh, no, no. Our physical shelter, um, because we we are run under, you know, my direction based upon, you know, the mayor or the first selectman, mm-hmm. um, we, we determine how long the animal stays based upon their behavior and based upon um, how they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if they aren't doing well... We look for rescues to reach out um, to see if they would pull them and take them and put them in a different type of an environment, like a foster home type mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're doing well, they may be there for six months. And um, because we have so many volunteers that come in and provide them with enrichment and they go on day trips, they can go in the woods walking, you know, they get taken out for treats and stuff like that. They they tend to do pretty well in it's our quite facility. An operation. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to do pretty well in our facility because they have so many hands-on interactions and we also... Um, allow them to do doggy play groups and things like that too. So, you know, we try to provide them with as much enrichment as possible. So um, one of the commitments that I make to the animals at my facility, and I understand that every shelter can do this because um, they, they, a lot of shelters have higher volume than I do, and they're in a position where the animals have to come and go as quickly as possible, is each animal that leaves my facility we will take that animal back, um, you know, as long, especially if we have space. Um, if we don't have space, then we put them on a waiting list and we take them in when we have openings again. Mm-hmm. So that will go true for these dogs that we're taking in from Texas, too, because it's certainly not one of my thought processes that I want to put a burden on another community um, or another resident somewhere mm-hmm. where they all of a sudden find themselves in a position that they're not able to care for the animal. And then um, now, you know, the burden is on another community to say, oh, now what do I have to do with this dog? Right. And one of the, um, uh, perhaps one of the ramifications of your policy is that folks out there know that Brantford is, for want of a better word, this is my term, a no-kill shelter. And the dog has got a shot at more than seven days. I mean, I, yeah. knew, I knew that you had more than seven days. Yeah. I just wanted you to tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And um, so that might account for this most amazing story involving a dog named Hope. Yeah. <laughs> a dog that your, your folks and yourself, I gather, named. Yep. Um, when she was brought to your shelter. So tell us the story of Help. Tell us how she arrived and um, what the circumstances were and what her journey has been like. So um, Hope arrived to us in early March, and um, I had uh, two animal control officers at uh Actually, I believe there was actually one animal control officer at our facility and our program coordinator who was at our facility when a woman arrived and we had a school uh, system at our facility as well at that same exact time visiting with animals and, you know, talking about what we do at the shelter. So the whole shelter was filled with little kids. And oh, our program, co- I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. our program coordinator was trying to, you know, work with the children and talk about, you know, kind of what our what our mission is at the shelter. And a woman came in and kind of interrupted him and mm-hmm. said that she she needed to talk to somebody that she had just found a dog. And so 
he excused himself and, and left and went to go um, see what was going on. And he, he at first asked the woman to bring the dog in and she said that she really couldn't. And so he went out to go see what was going on. And um, this dog was a, an extremely emaciated dog and it was in a big Tupperware bucket and huh. um, in the back of her car mm-hmm. and it had a blanket and sort of a little pillow in there and the dog was just laying on it. And so uh, the gentleman at my facility tried picking the dog up to see if he could stand up. He wasn't exactly sure, you know, at that point what was going on. And um, the dog couldn't stand. The dog basically fell over. So um, when he realized how emaciated the dog was, he went back into the shelter and asked the animal control officer who was on um, what to do. Because he he's not an animal control officer and he wasn't versed in, in really dealing with situations like this. Right. So um, when she went out and saw the condition of the dog, um, she rushed her to the vet and, um, you know, received the information from the woman. And the woman had told her that she had found the dog on Route 1 uh, near Big Y and that she was um, fallen over um, on a grassy patch area. And um, and that was what we were told. So, hmm. um, you know, of course, Hope was rushed to Branford Veterinary Hospital. And um, upon intake... Um, the staff actually originally named Hope something different, and I can't remember right now what it was. But upon intake, she was named something else. And when we got, I, I had not seen Hope because I was out on another call. So when I came back and they explained to me what happened, I went over to the veterinarian's office to go see this dog. And when I walked in, um, you know, I was horrified to see the condition that she was in. And um, one of the vets said to me, you know, what did you guys name her? And I said, you know, I'm not really sure the staff had named her something. And one of the vets said, what do you think about Hope? And I said, Hope is perfect. I said, let's name her Hope. So that's how Hope got her name. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was at that point that they basically said, you know, that that survival was not going to be um, really uh, something that they were looking at as a positive thing. They they really thought that she was probably not going to make it through the next two days. So how, how much did she weigh? Um, well, there was two different scales. One said uh, 31 pounds and one said 34 pounds. So um, so she was somewhere in between that range. And she's like 77 pounds now or 78 pounds now. Um, what kind of dog is she? She is a Rottweiler Beagle mix. Hmm. Um, so <laughs> we did a DNA test on her. Um, she has no pit in her, but we were we were calling her a pit when we first you know saw her. Uh-huh. Um, she has no pit in her, according to the DNA test, anyways. Um, and um, as we all know, she just surprised us every day. Um, you know, and I have this thing that I do with every animal that I I have come into my facility, especially when they're sick mm-hmm. or they're really really depressed because they just lost their family. Is I kind of try to snuggle into them and whisper into their ear, you know, I promise we're going to do everything we can to save you and make it right, you know, and do whatever we can to find you a home and you know make make this okay again. Because I I feel like they they read off of our body language. Mm-hmm. They know you know based upon even if they don't understand what we're saying they know mm-hmm. by what we're doing mm-hmm. that we're trying to comfort them and and be positive um you know and i i didn't cry in front of hope i left there and cried and thought oh my goodness like this dog was so emaciated i was just horrified by the fact that she was even you know still alive still with us at that point right and then a kind of extraordinary situation developed because you um you began to chronicle this on facebook Yep. Um, and um, so your shelter has a Facebook page. Yes. Uh, and what happened? You, you you put a photograph up. 
I think that's how I first saw it. I can't remember now. But uh, and what what happened? So when she first came in that night, I was at the shelter. I want to say it was probably like seven o'clock at night. And I thought, you know, um, if she was if she was standing near Big Y on Route One and fell over. Mm hmm. Our community is full of animal-loving people. Right. I mean, we get calls about squirrels that fall out of trees and stuff that need help. So I was like, you know, there had to have been somebody who saw this um, mm -hmm. just beyond the one person. So I thought, why don't I just put up a photo and see if anybody recognized that dog and recognized kind of the story by Big Y. And never did I imagine that the response would be what it was. I just figured, you know, some Brantford people would reach out and say, yeah, I saw that dog or, you know, I, I um, was there or whatever. Um, but it took off and <laughs> had a life of its own. And I just never imagined that it would turn into the story that it turned into um, because we have had so many other cases. Um, not necessarily at, with dogs that were as emaciated as Hope. But the photos that you put up where you could see her ribs. I mean, and they, they were so dramatic. Yep. Um, and so this story sort of went worldwide? It did, yeah. I mean, we had people reach out from all over um, the world, everywhere from Australia and Italy um, to Ireland, all over, um, that sent items to us um, for hope mm -hmm. and um, just prayers and cards and all sorts of things. So it was really pretty spectacular to be a part of and to um, to see the support, you know, that we had with this dog. And, you know, people kept asking me, why do you think that there's so many people who care? Mm -hmm. And I think because they were able to relate to the story. I think that everybody knows what it's like to be hungry. Mm -hmm. Everybody can imagine not having food mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to still survive. And I think that she was a fighter and she was um, surviving that, you know, it really kind of gave people a positive story to hold on to that, you know, we all prayed and believed in her. And it was just one of those things that people were so happy about. Right, right. And she did have surgery at one point that was a little tricky. Yes. And yeah. There were many tricky things that went on with Hope. I mean, there was quite a few times where we thought we were going to lose her. Um, mm -hmm. And there were many, many, many nights throughout that few month period where none of us slept. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was just... um it was chaotic, but, right. but she, she survived and she thrived and she actually just got spayed a couple weeks ago. Oh, right. Um, and she's in her home with her forever people and she's really just doing amazing. You know, she's still building trust with mm. strangers that she mm -hmm. meets, mm -hmm. but, um, for, for all that this dog has been through, it's just been, you know, really an amazing journey. What have you learned about who might have done this to hope from hope? from Hope's reactions to others? Well, that's been really, really hard because mm -hmm. we can't pinpoint, um, you know, a lot of times at the shelter, we can look at a dog's behaviors and say, oh, you know, maybe somebody who was tall, bald, and had a beard was not nice to this dog because every tall person who's bald and has a beard, the dog pees and, and shivers and hides into the back of the kennel. Right. With Hope, you know, she was, she was not specific about who she was nervous around. Hmm. She, it was, it didn't make a difference what race or ethnicity, or if you were big or small or tall or short or heavy or, uh, it didn't, you know, for her, she, it's almost like a feeling or something that she got. And there were some people she'd run right up to and she was like, hi, oh my God, nice to meet you. And then there was other people who could look just like that person, just have the same type of look. And she would, you know, either cower from or growl at them. 
Hmm. Um, so, you know, it was very difficult. That part of it has been very difficult because we can't pinpoint, uh, you know, a certain type of person where we would say, oh, you know, this is, this is probably, you know, who was involved. Right. So you started an investigation. Yep. From the very beginning, I believe there was a reward. Yes, there still is. It's um, $12,500. Right. And that would be for information leading to the arrest of this person. Yep. Uh, and so that was in March, mm-hmm. and we're heading to October. Uh, where are we? So and we we go. Um, we Wendy Wendy is the assistant director at yes. the shelter. Mm-hmm. So Wendy and and I go to um, different places where um, we know that there's a lot of people who like animals, and mm-hmm. we p- place posters there, reward mm-hmm. posters, mm-hmm. and we're still talking to people and still have our feelers out there with some some people that. We hope um, we'll, you know, get get information out there um, to hopefully, you know, stir up some leads. All right. But so far, you're still working on it. We're still working on it. Right. It's, it's going to continue to be an open investigation, mm-hmm. um, you know, until we find out something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really was a fascinating story. And thank goodness she survived. Yes, and she did right, right, and she did. It was, uh, but and it brought it brought so many people together. It really did. I mean, it really brought the community together. Um, you know, so many people would just walk into the shelter crying, right. and you know that you know we're just they were crying because they were sad about what had happened to her, and they were crying because they were so proud of us for making sure that we did everything that we could, mm-hmm. and that was very humbling. You know, mm-hmm. to hear from people, it's like you know most of the time we assume they were crying because. They were just so upset, but people would come in and just hug us, you know, and say, mm. thank you. Thank you for caring. So that was amazing. That, that's amazing because you do it every day. Yeah. 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 But the, again, there was something about, about her yep. and about, you know, how she looked and, right. and her, her determination to live, it seemed to me. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so what has your staff learned from this whole, from the HOPE experience? Um, I think we've learned a lot. Um, you know, in our industry, we tend to only come into contact with people out in the field, especially when something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're kind of a reaction-based industry where, right. you know, someone calls because um, a dog is roaming, a dog has bitten somebody, um, you know, someone's hoarding cats, um, or, you know, someone says they're, they're you know, hitting their dog mm-hmm. or things like that. So a lot of times when we come into contact with the public, it's not necessarily for the most positive of reasons. <laughs> um, and, and at our facility, we are fortunate because we do get a lot of um, positive people in there, like volunteers and people mm-hmm. who just want to stop and donate stuff. <clears throat> but with this, what I think we all learned from this was that there really are more good people out there than I think we, we recognized um, mm-hmm. because you kind of get so caught up in your bubble. Mm-hmm. of, you know, just being react- reactive-based and going out on calls. Mm-hmm. And to see all the people who came to us from all different places. I mean, mm-hmm. we had people drive in from New York and New Jersey just to come and see us, wow. um, you know, and just talk <clears throat> to us. That was in Massachusetts. I mean, there were so many people from all over the place that would just stop in. And that was just amazing. I mean, it was amazing. And I think it taught us that, you know, kind of like there's more of us out there than there is them <laughs> um, right, type of thing, right. that there's more of us who care. Mm-hmm. And who really want to see good things happen, you know, for animals and for the community and um, for animal control officers, right. you know. So, so we were really happy, I think, to, to learn that from right. all of this. Right. Um, put yourself right now back on uh, the task force and mm-hmm. the hope case. Have you learned? What have you learned that might begin to percolate with regard to something for the task force? Has this case 
led you to something that is more general for the state or not? Or Well, I think, you know, with some of the cases we've had in Brantford, including, you know, the um, Desmond case, mm-hmm. you know, we, we want to see stronger laws mm-hmm. um, and we want to see um, both animal control officers and, and police investigate these crimes um, seriously. So we want to make sure that um, the laws are in place for everyone to do their jobs properly mm-hmm. and to be able to make sure that people who are found um, guilty of these crimes are prosecuted. Right. And um, that, that's one of the things that I keep getting back to. And for those of us who, those of our listeners who've just joined us, we don't have too much time left, but I do want to say uh, that our speaker is Laura Bourbon, the director of the Dan Cosgrove Animal Shelter. I haven't done that couple of minutes so <laughs> i'm trying to be better about introducing um <clears throat> but yes could we uh do more about that yeah i mean we absolutely could could do more about that and that's one of the things that we are looking at on the task force and like i said luckily we have a group of people on there who who have um an extraordinary amount of knowledge in this area mm-hmm. so um we will be looking at this and seeing how we can positively affect those laws for animal control officers to be able to do their jobs uh, more effectively yeah right right well it looks like our time is soon up um and it really goes fast it's been a fascinating <laughs> it conversation it always is um and i'm glad to hear that you're going to think about the role of the courts in, in this and the, and perhaps the re-education of the judiciary in some fashion. I mm-hmm. know that's a bold yeah. statement on my part, but <laughs> what the hell. Um, and uh, we want to thank uh, Animal Director uh, Laura Bourbon for being with us today. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast. It's fascinating to listen to a wide variety of shows that the station is producing every day. So thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you.